You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hey, everyone. If you like this podcast, you should check out the full finance journey at realvision.com slash rvpod to get the full view of what Real Vision is all about. A video on-demand platform you can watch anywhere. Our members get daily videos and analysis, plus access to more than 3,000 videos for beginners and experienced investors alike, and live events online. You'll join the most thoughtful community in finance. More than 300,000 people who trust Real Vision to be the anchor to truth in the financial world. To get started, visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code PODCAST10 to get 10% off our essential membership for your first year. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Wednesday, July 20, 2022. I'm Ash Bennington, joined today by Harry Melandry, strategist at Macro Intelligence 2 Partners. Welcome, Harry. It's good to see you again, Ash. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Lots to talk about here. Before we get to it, let's take a look at equity markets. A lot of green on the screen today. Uh, Dow Jones Industrial Average uh, up fractionally, S&P up 500, up about uh, six-tenths of 1%, closing out very close to 4,000 at 3,959. But the big mover of the day is NASDAQ Composite, up one spot, 6% or thereabouts, closing out the day at 11,897. Once again, it's back to, uh, I guess, a couple months ago with tech leading us higher. Harry, what's your take on what's happening in markets and more broadly in macro right now? So all takes are inevitably uh, a little subjective. And when I look at the world, I see mostly bad news. And my guess would be everybody else sees most of the same bad news. And so I can't help but think of this move in markets as, a, as squeezy, um, as a short squeeze, as a counter move that's pushing people into their, their pain trade. Um, I think a lot of players would have hedged. A lot of people will be underway, and this is the most inconvenient move for them. So what does the pain trade look like right now? How do you assess that, and where do you think we are in that cycle? Uh, So I could go through and and give you a list of bad things that are happening. Um, My guess is that everybody knows every bad thing that's happening, except for COVID. I'm not sure everyone is aware of quite how bad the COVID situation is in various places and how much it's accelerating. And, you know, we don't really know whether COVID is still a significant health risk. We've got some ideas, but uh, subjectively, we're, we're told to no longer worry about it for, you know, for various reasons. Um, I When I look at what's going on in hedge funds, uh, I can see that hedge fund returns are way better a historical, recent historical returns are way better than the market's returns. Hmm. So overall, uh, our friends in the hedge fund space have hedged their books, and they've hedged their books way better than retail has, generally speaking. Um, it may, I can't remember the exact number, but I'm thinking down 6% for the year in long-short equity, which would be pretty heroic compared to what had been going on in that space uh, prior. 
Um, and I think macro guys as well have, have caught this, you know, a couple of ways. Well, the CTA guys have, have been absolutely nailing moves. Uh, CTAs have caught the down moving bonds, up moving rates really well. They caught the Dixie move, the the move in the dollar index really well. Um, and I think they're probably, uh, it wouldn't surprise me if CTAs had chosen to reduce their positions. Because if you think about the momentum in equity indices, it had been very solidly down. And then it, it, in the last couple of weeks, it's kind of been chopping around. So it wouldn't surprise me if to some degree CTAs are choosing to reduce their shorts at this point in time. Um, me personally, I, I, I just see bad news everywhere I look. But of course, it doesn't really matter what the old news is. It matters what the new news is. So perhaps the bad news is the old story and the new story is the Fed's going to change direction. I got, I, I don't buy that personally, but that's just me. So let's walk through those important points you just made there. First, on the COVID front, what do the data tell us? Obviously, we see a lot here uh, in New York City. I've spent the last couple of days in bed. Just an hour or two before we get started, went live here today, I got my COVID test back, my COVID PCR test back, negative. It seems, unfortunately, uh, to be on lots of folks' minds. What is the data telling you, and what's the significance as you think about the broader macro picture? So I don't have the numbers to hand right now. I didn't really think to look these up, but here's what i've been reading about up to up till now uh there are new omicron related strains those appear to be uh much more infectious uh and have broadly speaking to be less damaging per infection so uh, the greater degree of infectiousness means that we're actually seeing hospital beds increasingly occupied by it, even though the average person who contracts it probably won't get so sick. Um, that, together with lack of mitigation, um, means that we've got quite a big wave going through us here and now. Now, does that matter? Well, to some degree, yeah, because some people are getting sick, because hospital capacity in places like the UK is impaired, partly because of so many sick NHS workers and partly because the temperature is ridiculously high in London right now. Um so altogether, I, there are places in the world you can look at and you can see, oh my God, there's, that's a, there's a lot of COVID in that place. There's a lot of COVID in Turkey. There's a, a big wave going through Japan. Um, China is interesting because you know they've got 700 cases over China as a whole. That's nothing compared to the rest of the world, but I thought they were meant to be zero COVID. So it, it, would we get another lockdown in China? And to what degree are our health systems uh, going to be able to cope with this wave? Because the, the newer iterations of these Omicron-related strains appear to be, well, let's, let's say the vaccines don't really do much to, uh, and the previous immunity doesn't really do much. You can be reinfected. You can be reinfected, um, according to some people, within a month of a prior infection. So I don't know to what how important this is. We're about to find out. Well, it's also interesting. Obviously, neither you nor I are uh, immunologists. But let's talk a little bit about what you think about the potential risks to the animal spirits in the economy. How does that show up, if it does show up, and how will we know? Well, my animal spirits are being crushed. I don't know about yours. Um, so uh, I get given my, – my boss, Julian Brigden – gives me research projects. He says, go and look at this. He's got great instincts. And he often, would, often it's surprising how often where he tells me to go and have a look, I'm shocked by what I see after I go and have a look. <laughs> so 
his research project recently has been the real estate market. And I think anyone who's observing what's going on in U.S. real estate knows that it stopped stone cold dead uh, January stroke February between those. And a lot of that is, you know, it's a very simple thing. If you add 250 basis points to 30-year fixed rates, you can expect anybody who needs to borrow 30-year fixed to, to buy a place is going to find themselves priced out. It's not going to work anymore. So that's one side of that. And that's not so surprising, right? The Fed jacked up rates. It hit, hit the long end just as much as the short end. And uh, those, those purchases of real estate stopped. From what I'm hearing from Julian, uh, he's surprised at the extent of leverage and the extent of speculation that was happening kind of under the radar. So you have places like Boise, Idaho, where there's a you know, significant amount of land purchased and development, spec development going on. Uh, where the pricing for that doesn't make any sense anymore. Uh, the the people who are selling out of California to go to Boise are now worried they may have to go back to California to work at their jobs. That remote distant thing may be, may be reducing. And the the kind of, we're talking about 75% price of pre, annual price appreciation in these markets. Um, it looks like we'll give back an awful lot of that. So that's on the real estate front. Um, he asked me to look at private equity. When I look at private equity, the same thing happened there. Private equity financial conditions tightened really sharply at the start of the year. Valuations in uh, recently IPO'd stocks have absolutely created. You can look up Uber and you can look up DoorDash. You don't need me to tell you. But the same is true for the unlisted uh, holdings. And the reason it's not so clear is because nobody shifts evaluation until they do a new fundraising round. So the, the, the most transparent fundraising we had was from Klarna. Klarna is a kind of buy now, pay later um, fintech, if you will. Uh, they front money to people and you split it into four equal tranches, your, your payment into those tranches, and you pay the same. So basically, they must have negotiated a discount somewhere down the line. Um, Klarna did a fundraising round last year where I think they were valued at $46 billion. They've just done another one in June where they were valued at, I think, $6.5 billion. Um and if you think about how much private equity there is in the world, well, it's been growing steadily for near enough 20 years. Um, it's everywhere, endowments, pensions. And the more I dug, the more it seemed to me that it crept into everything. You know, do you remember the Jeremy Stein comment from like 2013? I don't. Uh, uh, well, maybe, yeah. What can I? This explains why no one invites me to parties, right? But, but um, back in <laughs> you're always invited to this party. Right? Back in 2013, uh, Jeremy Stein, who was a Fed governor, gave a speech where he said, "You know, monetary policy is a pretty blunt tool, but it does have the virtue that it gets in all the cracks." Um, and he meant that if you, uh, he meant that if you uh, leave monetary policy too accommodative uh, or, or if you tighten it enough, you will deal with hidden spec in the system that the Fed maybe doesn't see or can't regulate. Um, but you can reverse that. If you don't tighten, if you have very accommodative monetary policy for an extended period of time, then why wouldn't there be the development of, of uh, expansion in areas that are not regulated by regulators, that are not 
uh, controlled by the Fed and are not so visible to them, well, like know, private equity. It's an interesting comment because I guess you could say it in a, in a more cynical way, which is the downside of monetary policy is that it absolutely nukes everything. Uh, and so, you know, it is this kind of double-edged sword. But talking about the uh, price pressure that seeps in across the board, I wanted to touch on something today, obviously a very big story. Uh, UK inflation now at a 40-year high. CPI coming in, this is consumer price index, coming in at 9.4% year over year, that's above prior, above consensus. Indeed, uh, coming in at the highest level since 1982, that's the Iron Lady era. This is the Thatcher uh, regime. This is a very long time. It's a very ugly print. Yeah, and you know, me personally, I don't think it's the last of them. Um, these things are often autocorrelated. Uh, one high print tends to follow another high print tends to follow another. And you know, the phrase second round effects, it's not so popular over here, but among European central bankers, they, there was somebody somewhere was always uttering the phrase second round effects for the last 20 years out of the ECB. Um, what do they mean by second round effect? They mean that higher inflation tends to result in higher, in higher wages. People will go on strike and demand higher wages. And the, the way I think about this is, the higher inflation has already resulted in everyone paying higher taxes. You drift into a higher tax bracket, you get that fiscal drag effect. So one way or another, you're, you're probably paying higher taxes because of higher inflation to the extent that your wages have kept up at all. But you could be, we're getting into that phase now where you're seeing trade unions in the UK saying, hey, I've just had a 10% real wage decrease. I'd like some of that back. I'm not. I'm not putting up with that. My my living standard has declined by 10% minimum. And truth is, it's probably more than that, right? The inflation statistics are probably underestimating the extent to which living standards in the UK and in the US and globally have declined because of higher energy prices and higher general inflation. Um, so we're getting into that point where we're going to find out the degree to which labour can push back against uh, that real wage decline. And my suspicion is it's going to be a pretty bloody fight, right? Nobody wants to get poorer. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. You know, talking about bloody fights here, uh, the dilemma that central banks find themselves in, the Scylla and Charybdis, I wanted to talk about the other side of this equation here, which is the bottom falling out of Eurozone consumer confidence, uh, down to a minus 27% print. This is the lowest level ever on record. How do central banks begin to think about how they split the difference evaluate this when they've got challenges on both sides of the dual mandate, at least here in the US where there is a dual mandate. So I think it's a boiling frogs uh, metaphor. What you want to do is to persuade people that the inflation is temporary. You want to reduce the attempted, uh, the the effort to repudiate the declining living standards. Um, workers are going to push for higher pay rises. You have to tell them it's temporary. It may not be as temporary as you tell them. 
Um, and the same is true for companies, right? There's there's upward movements on profitability at the moment. That Then that will switch to downward movements on profitability. There will be attempts to claw that back by pushing those price increases onto uh, consumers. Um, I'm Personally, I'm surprised by the resilience of consumer confidence. Um, have you seen the heating price rises they're talking about in the UK? And uh, the, obviously, we're aware that there are things going on with respect to the Russia-Ukraine war and gas supply in Europe, which may result in significantly higher heating prices across the entire continent. Um, none of this is good. So let's talk about it, particularly for an American audience who may see those headlines but not really understand the significance of nat gas, the geopolitics behind it, and the implications for the economy in Europe and also the animal spirits. I mean, you're reading these articles, some on the right, some on the left, that suggest that we're looking at a potential, potential to see people dying this winter because of inadequate fuel supplies or because of rises in prices. These are truly horrifying sort of commentary at the human level as well as at the economic level. So I'm going to, I know I'm going to come across terrible when I say this, but actually people die every winter because of, uh, of an insufficient heating. Uh, the question is how many? And yeah, there'll be more. There'll be a lot more. Um, and this this problem, I mean, I look at this and I think to myself, what we've got is a perfect storm for industrial relations uh, all over Europe. Uh, you're seeing political pressure expressed. You're seeing bigger and bigger demonstrations. The ones in Italy, I don't know if you saw the ones they had demonstrating against Mario Draghi. Um, I, I don't know how good your Italian swearing is. I think your Italian swearing is pretty good. But even I recognized what they were saying. And it wasn't very sweet of them. Um, so and, and what shocked me was when I was looking at that coverage, um, I, was the, I saw a lady complaining that she could not buy bread in Rome. So when you get that, that kind of complaint, that kind of pressure, the political pressure becomes uh, 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 impossible to resist. So me personally, I think these second round effects are going to be meaningful, that we, we probably haven't got inflation under control. And we haven't got it under control because we don't have the politics under control. Sobering comments, Harry. I didn't mean it to be. I, I think a lot of people get it and a, a lot of people are disconcerted by what they're seeing. That doesn't mean stocks have to go down because I think people have understood how bad things are and have positioned accordingly. So actually, temporarily, until we get, if we don't get a continual flow of bad news, I don't see why things can't bounce. But uh, the, the thing that I never get out of my head is I don't really understand why the Russian supply of natural gas to Europe is not further restricted. Why would they allow uh, European gas um, storage to refill before the winter. If they do that, their leverage over NATO and over Europe is much reduced. So I don't get why that would actually happen. I don't know why people would assume that that outcome is likely is the most likely outcome. Uh, by the way, for people following this, there was a fascinating uh, chart in the Wall Street Journal yesterday that showed the curves of the capacity of uh, fill in, in natural gas storage across Europe. And essentially, it's just a curve. It looks the same every year. They call summer the filling season. So what you can see is how these supplies uh, are building up, how the inventory is building up or not building up, as the case may be, uh, across uh, these months as we head into the winter season. It's an interesting story, and it's something that there are data points around. Absolutely. You know, the, if you're looking for data porn, uh, you should take a look at baseload electricity prices in France or Germany. They are absolutely terrifying.
um, both one year forward and spot uh, one day forward in France hit a new record, I think, yesterday. Uh, and that's as, as part, a percentage of spot or an absolute uh, what, one, term? No, no, one day forward in absolute terms. Uh, yeah. Basically, there's a deficit of electricity supply in France because they have commitments. They're a big exporter of electricity. Um, and there's a shortage of nuclear at the moment in France for various reasons. So uh, the high temperatures combined with the lack of gas have pushed up pushed up demand for electricity relative to supply and there's a problem and that that price increase it's a factor of 10 from memory um it's a factor of about 10 higher than it was last year can you imagine a, a 10 times higher electricity bill how does any industry operate in the, under those conditions so i mean that might just be a function of the weather at the moment in europe but there's a chronic uh, energy supply problem. Now, me personally, I'm way too invested in things like Argentinian uh, restructured debt. Why do I mention that now? Argentina imports LNG, right? It's And there are hundreds, hundreds is an exaggeration, but there's a lot of countries, particularly in the third world, that are dependent on LNG for their energy supply. Pakistan, uh, Argentina, uh, almost every country in Asia, frankly, imports large quantities of LNG. Well, you know, it hasn't helped that Europe is now a huge LNG importer. And you've seen price increases of an order of factor of 10 in LNG prices globally. Argentina's bidding 40 to 50 bucks as is tendering for LNG contracts for five of either five or six loads or something. And they're paying 10 yeah. times more than they were a year ago. No wonder they have, they have fiscal problems. Well, this is obviously an important story, a serious story. It would be great to have you back to do more of a deep dive. Perhaps you jump on, Harry, and interview someone about this. You know, this is not my specialist subject. God knows what my, is my special. But you know, the, the, I'm fa- I had a podcast. This is why you make a great interviewer on this topic. <laughs> Let's get, let's get someone in to scratch that itch for curiosity, because I think it really is an important story. But I wanted to shift gears here back to something we were talking about a little bit earlier, uh, which is this challenge, this balancing act that global central banks are attempting to perform. Uh, I say this because there's a really interesting clip that I wanted to take a look at. This is a conversation between Harris Kupperman uh, and Stephen Clapham from today called, Is This the Golden Age of Event-Driven Strategies? Uh, this is available on Essential Plus and Pro for Real Vision subscribers, uh, airing on 714, actually. Let's take a look at this clip. In terms of uh, you know the Federal Reserve, I, I think they're going to slow down. I don't think they're going to cut. Uh, I don't see that. But I think they're going to take a pause. Um, you know what they've done? It's one of the fastest rate of changes, uh, really, in uh, Fed history in terms of interest rates. In, in terms of what they've done with uh, uh, reverse repos, which is really just you know. QT under a different name uh, in terms of, you know, yeah. not just what the Fed funds have done, but the whole curve is done in, in pricing out. I mean, the Federal Reserve, they, they have three tools. They have QE, QT, they have interest rates, and they have the wealth effect. And the wealth effect is the, the, the largest drawdown in the history of the wealth effect. And so all three of these, you know, work with a lag. And the Federal Reserve historically, um, you know, they, they, they basically respond to mob rule. Congress gets mad, fix inflation. So they push too hard and they break something. Oh, the economy's crashing. Do something. They print too much. And they create infl- uh, acid bubbles. They, they need to slow down, deep breath, methodical. These things take uh, six months or a year to make it through the system. And I think they've done a lot so far. And they're, they're starting to break stuff. Uh, we're, we're seeing in the funding market. We're seeing in uh, ABS market and MBS and CMBS. You start to see it in asset prices. Um, 
You know, they were chasing oil higher effectively. Uh, everything else is kind of ephemeral, but uh, the price of oil has backed off in the last couple of weeks. So they finally have some cover to slow down. Industrial metals have collapsed. Um, you know, I don't know what food is doing, but labor is going to slow down because all the guys trading meme stocks are showing up to work again. Um, I, I think, you know, the inflationary numbers, plus you, you have uh, base effects. And so you're, you're coming up right now against peak STEMI. And as we get into the fall, you're not against peak STEMI anymore. And it'll give them cover to, to, to pause and take, take a breath and reevaluate. And they don't want to be hiking into an election. I mean, that, that's not how the Fed ever does anything. Well, that's copy adverting to precisely what we were just talking about, this balance of risk faced by global central banks. In this case, the Fed uh, saying essentially that he doesn't think they're going to cut, but they may be slowing down the rate of increase. Uh, thoughts about that, Harry, and how that decision gets made? I don't have any direct contact with the Fed. I, there was a point when I did. Um, but I do have friends and colleagues uh, who are much closer to Fed officials and do, and do have contact with them. And my understanding from talking to those guys is that Fed officials are dismayed by the current level of inflation. I mean, nobody, if I were Jay Powell, I wouldn't want to be, to go down in history as the next Arthur Burns. And the rumors we've heard is that Jay Powell has actually printed off the minutes of the key decision in, I think, 1974, when the Fed chose to loosen in the face of higher inflation rather than tighten because of fiscal issues. So uh, everybody knows what they're trying to avoid at the Fed. Uh, but, you know, you can try and avoid something. People in the past weren't stupid. They had those problems for a reason. Um, I can definitely see uh, the serious and widespread wealth destruction that I, I think uh, Mr. Coop, uh, Cuppy was talking about. Yeah. Um, I've, I've come across back of the envelope calculations suggesting $20 trillion or more of wealth destruction. Uh, a lot of it in, in Gavi bonds globally because of duration effects. 30% drawdown in stocks doesn't help. I know that there's $10 trillion worth of private equity that's been marked down, God knows how much. Um, and then we have crypto where this God knows how many trillion dollars got messed up there. So it's hard for me to conceive that you can take $20 trillion and nuke it, and it doesn't have any collateral effects on the real economy, on wealth effects, on consumption. So, yeah, uh, we all – I think my understanding is the Fed believes that – we will see uh, the inflationary pressures moderate uh, by the autumn. And this is where I have a problem, right? Because I'm not sure that's right. If you, you know, some proportion 30 to 40% of the US CPI is driven by shelter components. The shelter components haven't stopped, stopped going up. I mean, rent's going up even if pricing is going down. People all want to buy, no, sorry, all want to rent. Nobody wants to buy right now. So there's uh, significant shelter inflation. There's additional inflation in, uh, bear in mind the OE uh, owner equivalent rent is a constructed series. When that starts to go up like it did in the previous month, it tends to continue. So for all of these reasons, my suspicion is that the Fed might well be disappointed with the inflation performance come the autumn. And autumn seems to me to be a horrible kind of uh, uh, confluence of events where we find out how bad COVID is at the same time as we find out how bad the gas supply situation is in Europe, at the same time as we get statements 
from our private equity funds or, our, or the trustees of pension funds get their get their uh, statements through. So we may find that autumn we get a whole bunch of negative effect coming through, and that while the Fed is getting some enormously high and surprisingly high prints and in inflation. Even if the underlying inflationary picture sometime in the future is coming down, the next three to four months are not going to be pretty. The comparisons of last year are too, uh, too difficult. So, Harry, I'm, you're beginning to depress me here, man. You know, my wife says that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> but um, look, we, we live through challenging times. That doesn't mean we can't be happy. But uh, I'm, I'm not sure how bullish I am of stocks, even with a big short, even with people out there who have anticipated the, the negative setup and, and the trading for it. I think we squeeze, but I, I find it hard to believe the situation won't deteriorate further as we approach the autumn. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. So a couple of points here that I wanted to touch on. Since you mentioned crypto, we should say uh, Bitcoin trading above the 23,000 level uh, and Ethereum up over 1,500, uh, perhaps on word of a date certain being set to or at least a range coming up for the merge uh, ahead. Second thing I wanted to mention was that chart uh, from the Wall Street Journal yesterday. Uh, if we can take a look at that, I think our crack producing team got to get this up on the fly here. Uh, so what you can see from this chart is the very regularity of that curve. You can see it stacked uh, year over year there. I don't think 2022 is on that chart, uh, but you can get the general gist of what's being talked about here. And as you, you were saying, uh, the richness of these data sets so that you can get very precise idea on where we are and how much the risk is that we see unfolding. So an interesting data series and one we're going to keep an eye on. And I suspect to have more conversations about here on Real Vision uh, in the short and intermediate term. Harry, I wanted to jump in and switch gears here because we've got a lot of questions coming in. What do you say? Get a couple sure. minutes to do like a quick speed round, see how we can get through a couple of these. Sure, I'd love to. Great. So the first question comes from John A. This is from the Real Vision site. Uh, and the question is, outlook for 10-year treasury, specifically given QT might actually start someday. So translation here, uh, John is asking about the 10-year uh, treasury yield uh, and price. And he's saying specifically, hey, you know, we might actually start reducing this balance sheet at some point. Uh, so I keep on trying to buy fixed income and I'm not, it, it, it doesn't, it hasn't been rewarding as an experience. And Part of the problem there are the inflation numbers. Every time an inflation number comes out and I'm carrying a, 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 a long fixed income position, I get nervous because I know that any single inflation number could show another outsized high print. There's, there's no reason why that won't happen. You know, uh, If anything, the terms of trade shift uh, towards energy producers and towards food producers and away from service producing economies is, is enormously profound. So on, on the one hand, I keep thinking that uh, these rates are too high to be sustained. And on the other hand, it's not working out for me so good at the moment. Uh, so oh. what can I say? 
Well, you're in good company. It's this aspect of the notion that the 60-40 portfolio is breaking down, the historical correlation is breaking down. Uh, we're seeing, obviously, today's a bit of reversal of the trend on both fronts. But you know, the broader point remains intact. This has been very challenging for people who run money, portfolio managers, for people who are trying to get a sense of where this is going. Yeah, it's, it's inflation is higher than uh, than the Fed can control, and we're being led to believe the Fed will get it under control, but when? Yeah. Here's a question that comes to us from Tim New York from the Real Vision website. Harry, why is there so much talk about how negative things are now? Uh, this is a walk in the park compared to 2008. What am I missing? Or has or has the worst not come yet? Your thoughts? Great question. So in housing, in housing, and excuse me for that. Let me see if I can get rid of that. So in housing, um, this is apparent. You, you would think that it's nowhere near as bad as 2008. And that was definitely my diagnosis until Julian had done some recent work. Um, but uh, it depends which market you're looking at. And in certain markets, it's an incredibly difficult, uh, the, the, the supply-demand balance is much worse than you would expect. I'm talking about places which have seen enormous price appreciation. Um, so we're talking about Florida, perhaps. We're talking about Boise, Idaho. We're talking about Austin. Austin has been fantastic. If you were long of Austin three years ago, God knows how much money you've made on that. Um, why be surprised if that comes down a bit? And the spec for certain housing developments in these markets, um, I hadn't thought there was much spec in it. I had, I'd thought lending standards were pretty tight. But in practice, um, the more we dig, the more we see hidden leverage in those markets. So first of all, you know, untidy answer, but the right way of putting it is, the place where the excess of malinvestment was last time around in 2008 was definitely housing. This time around, the malinvestment in housing is probably significantly smaller, but maybe you should be looking in private equity, and maybe you're lucky enough not to have private equity, so the malinvestment is is significantly smaller for you. The losses, you're not looking at 60% write-downs on your private equity. If you had private equity, you might well be looking at that 60% write-down and saying, oh my God, this is so much worse than it was in 2008. Um, and one other observation, like anecdote-wise, I got a colleague of mine, uh, Stephen. Um, he's very good at picking up some cute anecdotes. Um, he's noticed that light airplanes and small boats are getting surprisingly cheap. Um, you can pick up a light airplane now uh, for 75000 bucks. That's incredibly unusual. Uh, the kind of people who might have that, I, maybe we time them high net worth individuals, high net worth individuals, doctors, dentists, lawyers. Um, suddenly, if for some reason, have decided now is the time to sell their light airplane. Interesting, no? Very interesting. By the way, pardon my chuckling, but I'm looking at the uh, streaming comments here on YouTube. This one coming in from Wade Cleveland. The modern 60-40 portfolio has 60% options and 40% mean stocks. <laughs> you know, that's going to give you an awful lot of theta on that portfolio. Your decay could be uncomfortable. Uh, I, I've, I've got an awful lot of S&P puts. I'm not enjoying the experience here and now. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what about options on meme stocks? Uh, you know, they'll be expensive too. I prefer to write them than own them, but I think it may be the covered call moment has passed for the time being. <laughs> if you're doing it naked, you've got uh, bigger uh, nerve than I do. The uh, Yeah, you know, swimming naked, uh, what's this uh, anecdote about when the tide com comes back out after you've gone swimming naked? So, uh, and I, we're in that kind of environment right now. 
Harry, we got about 60 seconds left. Final thoughts, key takeaways that you'd like to leave our audience with. So uh, these markets are very thin. Um, volumes are lower, lighter than usual, and they're going to get thinner into August. Do not be surprised by where we could trade up a significant way. We could trade down a significant way. There's not an awful lot of liquidity there, not much to stop outsized price movements. So you should scale your trades appropriately. And then secondly, you know, I don't know how bearish you are. I'm pretty bearish. I can see an awful lot of things to be concerned about. That doesn't prove in any way that markets will go down. I don't know to what extent people have discounted, roughly speaking, the same thing I'm looking at. But I, it's hard for me to believe that gas storage in Europe will ever get back to the 90% level that uh, is, it usually gets to in November. Um, and I, I think that will lead to significant problems down the line and something, you know, five to 6% of German GDP minimum has to, has to get shut down. Well, Harry, I'm aggressively neutral as always, but I feel like I may need a group therapy session. <laughs> but look at, look at the beautiful weather. There's so much hot, sunny weather all around the world. It's like How 97 can you be degrees. It's like 97 degrees and 160% humidity right now in New York City. I see your glass is half empty at this point. <laughs> After this conversation, absolutely. I just want to add ice to that glass. <laughs> Harry Meladry, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. I'm so sorry to doom so much on people. I didn't mean to. I just want people to kind of think about the issues. <laughs> well said. And thanks again for watching the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Tomorrow, Maggie Lake will be back with David Wu. Thanks for watching, everybody. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.